Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and get started, if that's all right. Um, so, um, uh, if you haven't sensed it, which you might not, in contrast to the outdoors, it's so cold. It's actually a little chilly in here. Um, I think there's some sort of issue with the heat in the building, so do not be self-conscious about wearing your coat. Um, nonetheless, I, I anticipate a heated conversation. <laughs> uh, uh, we just uh, uh, sit closely and enjoy. Um, so um, I'm Hannah Riley Bowles, a co-director here at the Women in Public Policy Program, and I welcome you to our, our seminar. Um, the mission of the Women in Public Policy Program is to um, support the development research that sheds light on gender inequality and also that serves as the basis for um, you know, evidence-based strategies for addressing gender equality. Um, and most of our work is in the area of economic and political participation. And this work today fits right in smack in the middle of this. Um, and one of the things that we're also very concerned about at the Women in Public Policy Program Again, not just to look at why there are inequalities, but also how to address them. And one of the things that's so motivating about this research, particularly in an era like with the elections that we just went through here in the United States, right, where we're saying we really want to be looking at how do you get women involved? Like, how does it happen? Not why doesn't it only, right? Okay, why doesn't it? That's important, but also how does it happen? And so our presenter today is going to give us some of that glimmer of strategies for um, strategies for change. Um, our presenter today is Soledad Perlman. She is a postdoctoral prize research fellow in politics at Nutfield College at Oxford University. She's going to be starting as an assistant professor in the political science department at Stanford University. She's, um, we can make claim to her as kind of one of our own. She's a PhD, <laughs> uh, recent PhD from the government department. Uh, here and um, did her uh, earlier uh, training in um, political science and economics at uh, Texas A&M. Um, she has, she, she's going to be presenting, she's got this new book, is it is work from the book, is yes. it? Yes, okay, so she's going to be presenting some new work from, um, from her book, Why Women Mobilize, Dissecting and Dismantling India's Political Gender Gap. So please join me um, in welcoming Thank you so much for that very kind of intro. Thank you all for, for being here today. Hopefully we can get excited enough to keep ourselves warm and our blood boiling um, as we think about these issues. Here comes those seats. We have seats down the front here too. So as Hannah mentioned, I am presenting um, sort of the overview of a book project that I'm finalizing right now. And so today I'm gonna present some of the theoretical arguments that I make in the book, as well as one of the empirical chapters that tries to sort of look at what, how it is that we can actually reduce the gender gap in political participation. And so the book project broadly asks three questions. So first, why do we continue to see a gender gap in political participation? Um, but then moving towards that question of how we address that gap. Um, second, thinking about when is it that gender becomes a unifying and politically salient identity? And then how can we think about the inclusion of women in politics as affecting governance and policy outcomes? But today I'm gonna to focus sort of on these first two questions. First, sort of theorizing why it is that we continue to see this gender gap in participation. And then second, trying to test different mechanisms to reduce that gender gap. 
But first, to prove to you that these gender gaps actually do exist, um, I wanted to start by giving you some data from across the world. So it's probably a little bit hard to see, but what I have here is a figure for sort of seven regions in the world uh, plotting um, the gender gap in two forms of participation, voting here in green, and any other non-voting political participation, things like attending protests, rallies, campaigns in red. And so this gender gap is the percentage that, on average, that men do this minus the percentage that women do. So a positive value means that men are doing this more than women. And so what we see is that in a lot of the world, outside of, say, North America and East Asia, there is a positive gender gap, particularly outside of voting. And this is strongest and most striking in South Asia, where, on average, men are participating about 20 percentage points more than women. And if we zoom into India uh, more specifically, we see this gender gap emerging, particularly around indicators outside of voting. So here, using a nationally representative survey in India, um, I compare the percentage of men in blue and women in purple that either voted in local elections or attended local public uh, community meetings. Um, and what we see is that if we looked only at voting, it would look that men and women are turning out at about the same rate. Almost all men and women are turning out. But when we get into these more nuanced, costly, but also potentially beneficial forms of political participation, here attending these local meetings, which later I'll tell you are super important for politics themselves, we see a vast gender gap emerging where men are about three times, four times more likely than women to be in these spaces. And I wanted to highlight that this gender gap far eclipses any gaps in political participation um, across caste. So here, blue is still indicative of men, purple is indicative of women, but the different gradations show you different caste groups uh, within India. And what we see is that for the most part, while some castes are slightly more likely to participate than others, the differences within men and within women are much smaller than the difference across men and women. And so this gender gap is actually a really salient and important uh, difference in inequality that continues to manifest in local politics. But to give you a little bit more context to what this means and how this manifests, I wanted to take you to two of the blocks that I work in in India. And a block is uh, a local administrative geographic unit, uh, the second tier of local government in India where you do have uh, elected representatives. And I first wanted to talk to you about this blue block right here. This is Godadangri block. And Godadangri block is in the state of Madhya Pradesh. It's fairly representative of most of India, and particularly representative of Madhya Pradesh. Um, in Godadangri, 50% of locally elected positions are held by women, which sounds great, but is mandated by the Constitution and by uh, sort of the laws in MP that have set a 50% gender reservation. And often this is sort of in name and not as much in practice as you would expect. Um, and if we look at female citizens as opposed to female representatives, this gender gap emerges. So when asked in a survey that I conducted, only 9% of women said they had ever contacted a local leader to ask for a benefit or a service or to gain access to something. Um, and this compares to about 50% of men. Um, and even fewer, only 3% had actually followed through and submitted an application requesting for a service such as a road, a water pump, or a ration card. And I want you to compare Godadangre block to the block of Case Lock, which is here in red. And as you can see, these two blocks neighbor each other. 
And as you can imagine, because of that, they look pretty similar on most characteristics. On socioeconomics and demographics, these two blocks are virtually identical. But when we think about gendered political behavior, these two blocks look vastly different. So in case law, 79% of elected uh, positions are held by women, and not just in name, but also in practice. Uh, more than 40% of women report having contacted their local leader for a benefit, and more than 25% have submitted applications for services. And not just a few applications. In the last five years, they've submitted nearly 2,000 applications for services and been successful in 70% of those turning out actual changes in policy. And in addition to this, um, anecdotally, what I've seen is that they've organized marches against domestic violence, against payment delays and local government welfare schemes, and against alcohol abuse, which is often tied to violence. And so the women of Kaysla have become a political force to be reckoned with in a way that they are not in Yodanangri. So why is it that we have this emergence of women as active political agents in Kaysla block, but not in Yodanangri? And we can turn to some of the traditional literatures that would help to try and understand why this gap exists, a lot of which were sort of developed and theorized in developed contexts. Uh, the first of which would suggest that this is because of resources. Women are uh, lack some of the economic and educational resources that men have, and it's these gender-based inequalities and resources that explain gender-based inequalities in political behavior. Alternatively, we can think of this as the result of the economic division of labor. So men go out and have jobs and work outside of the household. Women take care of household responsibilities. And as a result, it may be an efficient system for men to represent the household in political spaces and women to continue uh, to stay in the household. And tying into this is an argument that this is really rooted in social norms, that gender bias norms say that the house is the place for women and political spaces are the space for men and that would keep women out, uh, out of political spaces. And finally, um, a really growing and, and quite large literature thinks about the role of institutions in shaping gendered behavior. Things like quotas and reservations and the way that our institutions are set up would actually help to increase and augment female representation or inhibit women's uh, representation more broadly. But the women of case law had the same income, education, bargaining power, and general sort of uh, access to labor market opportunities existed under the same division of labor uh, and under the same political institutions as well as social norms. So we're left still wondering why is it that Kaysla and Bodhidangri look so different? And one argument I'm going to make today is that this is all related to women's social connectedness and the degree to which they see other women as being their political, uh, being in their political network and coordinating their political behavior with other women. And so just to quickly overview and preview the argument I'm gonna present, I'm gonna argue that part of the reason, actually the main reason that we continue to see a gender gap in political behavior is because of the way that political behavior is coordinated and specifically, that women are coordinating their political decisions within the household. And what happens is that men emerge as the political agent of the household, and householders are behaving as unitary actors. However, in this system where men are representing the household interests, their interests are also getting sort of center stage more than women's. And so many of women's preferences are being underrepresented in this system. 
And so women would benefit from a different form of political coordination. In particular, I'm going to think about gender-based coordination. And so I'm going to look at what happens when you provide women with access to women's groups, namely, uh, and I'll describe this in more detail, self-help groups in the context of India, and how does that shape the who they actually discuss politics with, coordinate their political behavior with, and ultimately then their engagement in politics. And I'm going to use original data from a survey of just over 5,000 women and half of their husbands from uh, 375 villages in India, um, as well as leveraging a natural experiment that dictated which villages in India had access to an NGO program that mobilized women into these self-help groups, comparing those to villages that didn't have access to this program. And what I'm going to hopefully show you and convince you of by the ending is that participation in these women's groups and access to these social ties doubles women's likelihood of political participation, reducing the gender gap in political behavior, and that the key mechanism through which this is happening is through the activation of gender-based collective action and women's coordinated political behavior, but also the fact that participation in these groups seems to increase women's political information as well as their confidence and ability to sort of have uh, command uh, time and space in these institutions. So before getting into all of that, I'll first give you just a little bit of context to the case of India, and particularly I'm going to focus on sort of local politics in rural India. Um, I'll then spend a bit of time detailing the argument, and then show you the evidence that tests one of these constraints that emerges from the argument, and I'll conclude with some implications. And I should say, please feel free to interrupt at any point in time I'm happy to take questions or comments. So the study that I am working in is in the state of Madhya Pradesh, which as you've already seen in case line go to Dongri, is in the center of the country. It's the second geographically largest state in India with a fairly sizable population of 73 million people. Um, it represents India in a lot of characteristics and particularly represents this uh, sort of central belt of India. Um, and I'm going to be focusing, as I said, on sort of the rural population in this state, which is about 70% of the population. Um, and in terms of gendered outcomes, MP looks fairly similar to the rest of India. So we see sort of very low female labor force participation at about 25% compared to 27% nationally, um, as well as sort of general uh, similarities in terms of um, other both political and economic outcomes. And then thinking a bit about the areas that I'm looking at. So the villages that I look in are, as I've said, very rural, but also particularly in parts of the state that have a large tribal population. So 75, 65% of the population in the sample is tribal, although about 99% report their religion is Hindu. So there's not as much religious uh, heterogeneity in these areas, but there is a lot of sort of social uh, heterogeneity based on tribe and, and caste. Um, it's also an agricultural economy. Uh, and what that means, and what the implications of that are for what I'm going to talk to you about, is that there's a strong division of labor where men are sort of seen as the ones who are harvesting the fields and bringing in all of the, the resources to the household, where women stay home and tend to take care of the household. Although they do support some of the work in the fields, they're just not given credit for that in terms of financial uh, resources. And then the last thing that I want to note is the social norms that dominate are patrilineal, patrilocal, and patriarchal. 
Um, and so what that means is that men are the heads of the household and everything, but also, and we'll talk about this in a second, the petrolocal part is particularly important here. So what this means is at the point of marriage, uh, women are uprooted from their sort of natal village and they move into the village that their husband is from. So they're uprooted at that point of marriage from all of their existing networks and transported into a new place, at which point they have to abide by sort of patriarchal norms that keep them in the household. And now thinking about local political institutions. So in India, the Panchayati Raj institutions established a three-tier system of local government. So at the lowest level, you have Gram Panchayats, which aggregate just a few villages into a local, the most localized form of government. Uh, a few Gram Panchayats are sort of aggregated into a block. That's what Kesla and Godadangri are. And then a few of those blocks are aggregated into the district. And they're elected representatives at all of these tiers of government. And I'm going to zoom in on the most local form of government. And I do this in part because this should be, in theory, the easiest uh, institution for women to engage with. This is something you could walk to the panchayat office and actually uh, speak with your elected mayor or leader. Um, but panchayats actually are quite powerful in terms of the allocation of services. So Gram Panchayat is responsible for the provision of most local services, things like roads, water pumps, um, access to sort of state can decide over sort of school allocations and potentially have some decision over the allocation of health centers. And then they also have power over the distribution of welfare schemes. So for example, they are your first gateway to getting access to a ration card. Um, and so interactions with this level of government have massive implications for the services and benefits that you receive. Yes, but just one Most of the funding comes um, comes from higher tiers of government, some of which, so for example, when it comes to schools and health centers, they don't have full autonomy over the choice of how those are allocated, but they do sort of deal with hiring and things um, at the local level. Yeah. And the last thing I want to highlight, I've already talked about these local community meetings. These are called Gram Sabha. Um, these are meetings that happen at the panchayat level of all eligible voters who can come and deliberatively decide over the allocation of public goods and welfare transfers and voice their opinions over this. So this meeting in particular is where citizens, one way in which citizens have a very active role that they can play in the way that the panchayat functions. Mm -hmm. Can I ask about the panchayat? So you, you refer to the panchayat like a mayor, but is it a council or is it an, an individual? Like a, yeah, that's a, a good mayor? question. I think uh, I sort of talk about this here. So the panchayat has an elected sarpanch, which would be kind of like the mayor here. So that's the chairman of the panchayat. And then each village will have one or more uh, panch or sort of ward members that they would elect, um, which form the panchayat council. Um, so there is both a mayor as well as kind of a like, city or community council. Um, and there's a mandated sort of one in, in MP, 50% of all of the chairman positions as well as 50% of all of the uh, local ward members must be women. Yes. So, just for clarity, mm -hmm. so, so, so how many people were we talking about? So it depends on the size of the village. Okay, but it, anywhere from like three to Anywhere 10, from five to 15. Five to 15. Depending on the size of the panchayat and the number of villages in the panchayat. I should say though, um, it also, the, 
that power that the ward members have varies from panchayat to panchayat. The sarpanch is really the like most powerful person in the village and has a lot of the decision making power. Uh, just to clarify, how exactly are the reservation seats uh, given to women? So that uh, people, everybody can vote and they only vote for women candidates. And then second part is, in, in any of this, are there ever any uh, appointments done by any higher levels of government for like specialist level members on the council? So um, to answer the first question, so it's a random allocation at the village level of which seats are reserved and which seats aren't. So the way it's actually stated in the MP, MP law is that the Electoral Commission will put chits into a bag and then randomly draw chits of villages to decide whether or not that village was uh, reserved for a woman or not. So we can think about the chairmanship, the Sarkhanch position. Um, they'll decide these 50% of villages are reserved, these aren't, and only women can contest the election in villages that were reserved. Um, I will say though that it is, I don't have, I have some data on this, but it's not perfect that um, the, despite them being reserved, there is a non-trivial percentage of these seats where the female will be elected, but then her husband or some other senior male will actually be the person that people go to for um, access to politics. Um, your second question was about uh, non sort of anyone else who may be allocated to these positions. So there are, at the block and district level, there are bureaucrats that are assigned by the state um, to all, and sometimes by the, at the district level by uh, the, the federal government uh, to hold those positions. At the panchayat level, there are, so for example, there's a panchayat secretary that would be hired by the panchayat government, um, and occasionally you may see specialists brought in, but these are usually decided over by the local government or maybe by the block government itself. <coughs> yes. How much is Bangladesh uh, influence on say like Yeah, so um, these areas are so a lot of these areas have had the rollout of media um, into them as sort of TV access has increased. Um, I would say that international audiences have not made a huge impact in these areas, so I would doubt anyone would know Malala in these communities. That said, Bollywood figures, for example, would be a regular sort of role model that young girls might look up to. But I also think it's interesting um, to state that, so these tribal communities traditionally have had what we would maybe define as slightly more progressive gender norms depending on the tribe, where for example, you could take multiple partners, or you could get children out of wedlock, uh, but that's being eroded as some of these more national influences come in. So it's not clear that the extension of media um, has actually increased uh, women's rights or sort of shifted norms in ways that are more gender equalizing. And the last thing I want to state is that when I talk about political participation, I'm going to be talking about a range of political behaviors and not just thinking about voting. So this will include voting, but I really want to think about political participation as all of the ways that we as citizens interact with our local governments. So this would be in the case of India, in the case of rural India, attending these meetings, uh, communicating with your elected representatives and filing petitions to those representatives, 
uh, to gain access to services, whether that's a personalized benefit or a public benefit, um, as well as things like working with political parties, um, mobilizing for political parties, or even protesting in sort of local marches. So into the argument. So I start from the premise uh, that is coming from a growing and large body of research that we as individuals coordinate our behavior with a political network. So a set of people with whom we discuss politics, uh, we align our politics with, and then may even sort of align our political behavior with. Uh, and these are what I call political networks. So those people with whom you discuss politics, elections, and government. And the reason that we do this uh, is because when it's super costly to acquire information about politics, having access to political networks and those who we talk with can help sort of lower the cost of acquiring information. Uh, but also there's a growing literature that shows that social networks can impose social pressures on people to engage in politics. So you can think of the midterm elections, everyone posting their pictures on Facebook with their I voted button may make you feel like you need to go vote even if you wouldn't have otherwise. So depending on the degree to which your political network values political participation, that may shape uh, your own political participation, as well as even the preferences that you articulate. But I also want to think about political networks as doing something more, which is solving coordination problems that are inherent in these low information contexts. And so at the most extreme, we can think of this as uh, being able to collectively act with a group of people to go and make demands, uh, but at other ends, which we'll talk about, just who you would actually talk with and say, now we're going to sort of vote in this way because that's what our group has said we'll do, as well as what leaders can target and give us benefits. And I'll go into that in a little bit more detail. But the question then is, given the multitude of groups and people with whom we engage and the multitude of identities that we carry around as individuals, which do we actually align our political behavior with? And so I'm gonna argue that this is a function of a few things. So the first is the constraints that we have. And this is particularly important in the context that I'm looking at. You can only align your behavior and coordinate with those with whom you have social ties to. So your, uh, your social network is sort of the, the boundary condition here. But then we need to think about who you'd actually want to coordinate with from within the set of people that you're, you're connected to. And I argue that you'll want to coordinate your behavior with those who share the closest political interests to you, but also that have sort of the lowest cost to actually coordinating with. But then this actually isn't just an individual decision, but becomes a system of political mobilization that's enforced by the strategic mobilization of elites. And so for example, I mean a, a very simplistic example would be, you can think of a political representative, someone running for office, will find it easier to mobilize a group where they only have to engage with a few people in that group, but once they do that, they can capture the votes of every person in that group. Um, and so these elites will then uh, reinforce systems of group-based coordination. So thinking about who women might want to coordinate their behavior with. And so the first thing is to think about the political preferences that women have. You said you were open to questions. Yeah, right? so yeah. Can we go back to how you're thinking about coordinate? I just yeah. want to, maybe you already expressed this and then, I think you defined it a few minutes ago, maybe I mm -hmm. was thinking about it. But, but it'd be really helpful because, like, with regard to voting, yeah. we don't actually have to talk to anybody. We, we, could, we could happen to coordinate, right? So, so we yeah. all have a particular, a number of us separately, have a particular need, be it clean water, and there's yeah. one candidate who's 
Afghan for Clean Water, we don't we coordinate without any contact by voting yes. for that candidate. Yes. So, so what? How are you thinking about political coordination? So, like how are you using that? Term? I would think of it as different from what you've described. So okay. what you've described is just you have a set of shared interests with other people, and therefore you're likely to behave similarly to those people. Mm -hmm. But it's not the result of you talking to them and then realizing that you have this shared interest and that imposing some pressure on your likelihood of, uh, of behaving. So that would be kind of a very individual decision. I'm thinking about what it is I need, what it is that is being provided, and then I'm gonna go do that. Um, and that in many ways when we think about voting is that the traditional literature of voting is exactly in that right. framework. What are the benefits, the costs, who do I decide over? Um, the problem is, it then becomes irrational for many people to actually turn out to vote because of the cost of getting that information and knowing who it is and then the likelihood that you're pivotal. And so there's this uh, literature that's emerged that argues that a way to solve this is that A, we can, instead of figuring out who it is that provides water, you talk to other people and figure out who it is that you want and share information there and that will help you learn who it is that provides water, but who you talk to will shape the information that you get. Um, but then we can solve this, this sort of irrationality of voting by mobilizing groups of people instead. So all of a sudden, if I know that every other person in this room is gonna go out and vote for you know, a very gender progressive candidate, I will feel more confident that that person has a chance of winning and therefore I'm more likely to do that. Whereas if I'm on my own thinking, should I vote for this woman? But I suspect a lot of people won't vote for her. Maybe it's better for me to align with this other person as a second best. It can help to solve that kind of a coordination problem. So, and I'll talk a little bit about what this means. You can think of this, so one thing that this ends up happening is there's a big ethnic politics literature, and you can think of that as one of the ways that people coordinate their behavior. They sort of coordinate with others in their ethnic group to, because they expect that that will increase the likelihood that their interests are represented and that they'll likely reproduce. So who is it that women then share interests with? Um, and we share interests with lots of different people. So first, we have preferences that are based in our household. So many of the goods and services that we get from governments are delivered at the household level. You can think of things like ration cards that are delivered deliberately to the household, or you can even think of things like localized public goods. So whether or not the road on my street is fixed uh, is sort of shared amongst all of my household members. And so here, just to give you a little bit of data behind this, um, so I have, uh, I surveyed husband and wife pairs, and so men in red, women in blue, um, the percent of men and women who reported satisfaction with the provision of roads, schools, health centers, um, and sort of daycare centers, um, so nutrition daycare centers. And what we see is that men and women share are sort of almost equally satisfied with the provision of these services. And this, this holds as well if you look at within household pairs. Alternatively, women share uh, other identity linkages based on our intersectional identity. So here you could think of this as like ethnicity, that we share preferences uh, and interests with those that are uh, members of the same ethnic group as ourselves. And so in the context that I'm looking at, this could be around patronage, so the likelihood that I'm gonna get a benefit because the leader is part of my ethnic group, um, or other ethnicity-based or class-based preferences. 
as well as I may just share an interest in reducing ethnic inequalities and therefore I want to align my behavior with other members of that identity. And so here I'm just looking at three different caste categories, uh, scheduled tribes, scheduled caste, and OBCs, other backward castes. And what we see is that voting behavior is very different across these ethnic lines. That's all sort of this is showing. Um, but then finally, we may as women care about gender-based preferences, or men too, but I'm going to focus here on women. Uh, and the preferences that women share could come from a lot of places. So from the economic division of labor itself, so for example, the fact that I'm allocated the responsibility of collecting water means that I have a greater stake in the provision of water than men, whereas men may care more about the allocation of jobs. Um, we may also have gender-based preferences in this context that comes out most in thinking about domestic violence and reducing domestic violence. Here that tends to politically manifest in alcohol reductions. Um, and bans prohibition on alcohol. Uh, but we may also want to coordinate with other women simply because we want to reduce gender inequalities, even if we don't agree with other women on any of these things. And so here I'm looking at men in yellow, women in blue, the proportion that are dissatisfied with the local government's handling of alcoholism, toilet provision, and fuel provision. And fuel, like water, is something that women are responsible for collecting. So here we see vast differences in the, the preferences between men and women. So it is alcoholism, well, the concern is individual alcohol abuse and alcoholism in individuals that often translates into violence against women. Um, the way that that is advocated for politically is trying to curb the provision of alcohol in communities. So for example, um, several states now in India have completely prohibited alcohol um, or banned alcohol production. So while women may have shared preferences, in this context where there are extreme constraints on social mobility and social ties, there are high costs to coordinating outside of the household. And as I mentioned before, this in part stems from patrilocality and high marriage migration. Uh, so for example, in the survey that I did, 78% of women uh, were from another village as compared to only 9% of men. And you can think of what that does to your social network. You're uprooted from these historic networks that form in childhood, and then you have very little access to creating new networks. But this also can come from the economic division of labor and the fact that women are sort of allocated household duties and therefore stay in the household. But also, social mobility constraints limit social networks. So from a nationally representative survey of India, as well as the survey I conducted replicates this, 72% of women report that they have to ask their husband or another senior male for permission to visit their friend's house in the same village. And only 25% of women said they would be allowed to do that alone, even if they were given uh, permission. As well as less than 10% of women report being a member of a civil society group as compared to about 30% of men. And then this is further perpetuated by the threat of violence against women and uh, sort of as a form of social control and forcing women to abide by these norms um, and constraints. So in the survey that I did, 32% of women report, so mind you, this is self-reported behavior and likely an under-report, having been abused by their husband in the previous year. So this is not sort of a, a marginal attack. Yes? Sorry, I might be going ahead of where you are right now, but as you think about these social mobility constraints, did you ever consider or did you hear anything about uh, the, the constraints to physical mobility? I'm thinking 
transportation, walking, and all of this is kind of related to both the social and the physical. So, so to what extent does actual access to not having a private vehicle or not having a safe public transport in a village yeah. like this matter? That's a really good question um, and something that I don't actually explore in the rest of the presentation. So it's great that you brought this up. Um, and so I don't know that I have a great answer to that now in that I'm exploring mostly social mobility within the same village. So this is really just thinking about walking. Um, and the, I mean, one of the things that I was a bit surprised by, although maybe I shouldn't have been, is that something like 80% of women report not having left their village or their panchayat in the last year. Um, likely that fact is the result of sa the safe public transportation as well as some of these other mobility constraints. Um, but even these constraints sort of are imposed when you would think that you can walk um, and, and shouldn't have the same physical mobility constraints. Yeah, so um, we, the, the particular um, districts that I'm working in are very tribal, which would likely have a lot of maxile violence. They were selected to minimize maxile violence, in part because, A, I wanted to sort of not, um, that opens up a whole different sort of set of arguments you have to make, but B, for the safety of surveyors and teams going into these areas. Um, so in the particular areas where I have done this survey, and so where this data is coming from, there's very little maxile violence. So all of this suggests, yes. Sorry. Um, <laughs> in those outcomes that you have on the bottom, did you see variation between the people who migrated, the women who migrated and the women who did it? Hmm. I haven't looked at that. That's a good question. Um, I'd have, to, I'd have to look into it. My guess would be there may be some variation, but given that so many people yeah. migrate, um, it would be potentially minimal, or at least it wouldn't affect a huge portion of the population, but it's worth considering, yeah. So essentially, there are reasons that women might share preferences and interests with other women, but because of these high coordination constraints and women's disconnectedness and lack of social networks to each other, what I'm going to argue is that women are constrained from sort of coordinating in, uh, with other women. And women also share preferences with their household, uh, as we've already discussed, both because of these household-based preferences, but also because those intersectional identities are more likely to be shared within the household. So you're more likely to be from the same caste or ethnic group as others in your household. Um, and there are very low coordination costs. You come home every day and you can talk politics or hear others talking <coughs> politics in the household. Um, and there are high constraints from other actors in the household for you to behave the same way as they do. And so what this means is that often women will coordinate their behavior with the household and not want to deviate from uh, within the household itself. So what does this imply for women's political participation? So maybe this is how politics is coordinated, but why then don't women go to political spaces? And this suggests that we should see households aligning on demands and vote choices, but political participation, particularly outside of voting, and these more sort of costly public forms of participation, are costly. And so I'm going to argue that what happens is one or a couple of people from the household emerge as the political agent, the person who's going to show up in these spaces and represent the household's interests. And this is decided based on a few things. So first, 
who in the household, we can think back to resources, who in the household has the most sort of resources that would make it more likely for them to participate. And this goes in favor of men um, in these cases. So we see that literacy rates are significantly higher for men. Education is much higher for men. Men are more likely to have been employed. Um, and I should say that these employment rates include Norego work. And so if you exclude Norego work, which is sort of a local job welfare scheme, uh, that gap gets even bigger. Men make a lot more money, are more likely to be connected to other people, and in general have larger social networks. So in terms of resources, we would expect men to be more likely to participate. We can also think about how this might be bargained over within the household. Um, and because of the division of labor and the fact that men work outside of the household, we would think by our traditional definitions of bargaining power and exit options that men uh, would be privileged in bargaining negotiations. But also what we've talked about, there's sort of more forms of social control that happen where men can use the threat of violence to, uh, to increase their bargaining power in the household. And then finally, sort of the, the third linchpin in this argument is that social norms in these areas privilege sort of men's interests and, and state that politics is really the space for men and women should stay at home. So all of this together, I argue, suggests that men act as a political agent for the household, showing up in political spaces while women stay at home. And then this becomes a reinforcing equilibrium, where because men have engaged in these political spaces, they gain access to other political networks, they acquire political skills and information, and as a result become uh, sort of more likely to participate in politics as this perpetuates. So what does this imply? It suggests that there would be a gender gap in political participation, creating a system of gender-based insiders and outsiders, but that women who have sort of lower social mobility constraints, greater resources, and greater bargaining power might be more likely to participate in politics. And I won't go into all of that today, but the rest of the book sort of explores each of these different constraints. It also suggests that we should see an alignment of household preferences and voting behavior uh, because of these sort of household-based identities. And it, what this implies is that gender-based interests are likely to be under-provided in this system, both because women are privileging interests around household identities, but also because as men being sort of the political agent and having more bargaining power, their preferences are going to be given greater weight within the household itself. And thinking at a sort of broader scale, po politics and sort of the identity around which politics is organized will be around sort of shared household identities rather than sort of gender as an identity. So all of that builds the case for maybe a fairly um, depressing story of why women don't participate in politics. But as sort of discussed before, the aim is also to think about how we might reduce this inequality of political participation. And so these implications yield a few, uh, a few further implications. So first, we could think about increasing women's resources. Um, but that has been studied and often found to not have these, uh, these effects of reducing inequalities in political participation um, when, it's when you sort of give women access to information on its own. Um, and so for example, looking at the sample that I do, I decompose the sample and show that 86% of the gender gap is unexplained once you account for education, uh, employment status, income, and all of these other resources. We could think about increasing women's bargaining power, and that's something that I explore in a different chapter. Uh, but what I'm gonna talk about today is what are the implications of broadening women's social networks and increasing their social ties and ability to coordinate with other women. 
And the idea here being that women can now coordinate outside of the household when these social networks become political, but these networks may also reduce gender-based inequalities. And then in general, also shifting norms would be great, but that's also a very tough thing to do without addressing these other constraints. So thinking now specifically about the social tie, social network constraint, what I'm going to explore is what happens when you give women access to groups of only other women. And the argument being that when you sort of solve that coordination constraint amongst women, this can foster solidarity and potentially increase the likelihood of gender-based collective action amongst women, particularly, as I've argued, when gender-based interests are underprovided. But women's groups can also provide critical support to counteract social norms, constraints on mobility, and threats of violence when you have sort of a critical mass of women who can help to sort of help you navigate uh, these constraints on your behavior. But then also women's groups can reduce inequalities in political resources. So you can think about heterogeneous groups as helping to share information when different people come together and have different amounts of information, as well as provide spaces for you to develop sort of confidence and civic skills before actually entering political institutions. So now the evidence, the empirical part of this. So the question I'm trying to ask in this particular chapter is does access to social networks affect women's political behavior? The problem is that networks are often endogenous. Who you talk to is, uh, is likely related to your political preferences and your beliefs and, uh, and how connected you are is also tied to these things. So what I'm going to do is exploit as if random variation in access to an NGO uh, program that uh, provided some women with access to self-help groups, which are sort of economic networks of women, and other villages didn't get this uh, program. And so the particular treatment that I'm looking at is access to self-help groups. And self-help groups are groups of 10 to 20 women from the same village, there can be more than one group in a village, that meet, in this case, weekly for informal savings and credit. So you come together, you put some money in the local pot, and then when you need to take out a loan, that's allocated informally within the group. But these groups end up sitting together for many hours when, and over time, the conversation starts to sort of turn away from simply talking about finances and livelihoods, but talking about sort of what's going on in your life, maybe what your complaints are, uh, and may even sort of hit on political issues. Um, the way that these are implemented, though, is I, I'm working on a program with, um, with the, an NGO that came in, and what they did was they sort of went around and told everyone about these groups uh, and asked people to opt into them, and then they put you into the groups, and their job is just to facilitate the group's organization, but not to provide direct political or other inputs. Um, and the last thing that I'll mention is the groups that I'm studying, these are not like short-term interventions. On average, they've been meeting six years, but up to 15 years. So I think what's really important is this is a social transformation. This isn't something that just happened overnight, where all of a sudden I have access to new women and I trust you enough to want to change my political behavior. Yes? Just a question. Um, do we know about the conditions that um, allow these women to participate in groups? In other words, did they also require this is a fantastic question, um, and I don't think I have the link here, but I can show you later um, some of the data behind this. So the key reason that women report, women and men report women opting into these is because of financial need. So 98% of women say they opted in because they needed access to credit. They did require permission from their 
husbands or uh, most of them, many of them would have required permission to engage in these groups. <coughs> and I think that that's in part why what's critical about this is these were seen as economic groups. And so they were they were given permission because it was some resource that men thought they could extract. But then they have these indirect consequences on things outside of economics. And, and one of the things that I think is important is that um, you would think after men start to see these changes, they may want to revoke permission. But at that point, you've got this network of women who, are, who I have so many stories of women saying, well, she stopped coming to meetings. And so 20 of us walked up to her house and said, like, if you don't let her come, you know, we're going to like stomp and, and you know, sometimes think violent things. <laughs> So I think, in answer, I think it's important that these were economic groups, and that's part of what makes this work. So to actually look at the effect of having access to this program, I am going to leverage the way that the NGO rolled out the implementation of the program. So what they did was they picked a district that they were going to work in, and I'm looking at six districts here, and then they placed their headquarter location somewhere in the district. And because their aim was to work with remote rural villages, their headquarters location was placed with that in mind. So it's in sort of a small town, but not one of the big cities in the district. And then they decided what was the radius that they could feasibly travel in a day to make it to service a village. And so on average, it's about 25 kilometers. And from within that radius, they selected a set of villages to work in. So they selected generally poorer, more tribal villages to work in. And so I'm going to use this radius, this sort of arbitrary decision that they could only make it this far, to compare the villages just inside that had access to those just outside of this boundary, who, for all intents and purposes, they should be fairly similar because they're geographically proximate, but didn't get access to the program because of this arbitrary rule. But to confirm and make sure that they look identical in as many ways as possible, what I did was I pair matched villages across this boundary on things like the percentage of the population that's tribal, average literacy rates, um, and other sort of socioeconomic characteristics. And through this pair matching process, I came with a sample of paired villages that looked identical on these observable characteristics and then arguably should be identical and unobservable characteristics, things like gender norms, because of their proximity um, and that it's just this random boundary that separated them. And then to collect data on political outcomes, I did a survey in these 375 districts, across, or 376 villages across five districts, uh, where I sampled 15 women, half of their husbands per village, and one political leader. Um, the survey was done, uh, so I randomly sampled respondents from beneficiary lists in the treated areas and from census rosters in the others. So this may create some concerns that I'm selecting only the women who selected in, so the beneficiaries in treated areas, whereas a random sample of likely women in others, and I'll address this in a second um, uh, to sort of talk about how I handle that. Um, surveys were conducted in person with responses recorded on tablets and to ensure uh, sort of women's comfort as well as to minimize social desirability. Uh, only same gender interviewers were used and privacy was 100% ensured, so no man was allowed into the interview. Okay. So what I've already described is I sampled the villages based on this pair matching uh, approach across the boundary. And now I wanted to think about 
um, how can I think about respondents? As I've already said, I'm looking at the women who selected into the program in the areas that had the program. So I want to find the women who would have been most likely to select into the program in the areas where they didn't have the program. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to match respondents between these treated villages and control villages based on the set of characteristics that determine who's likely to join a self-help group. Things like financial need, um, access to land, and other resources. And then I'm going to estimate sort of the treatment effect using this match sample, using a regression discontinuity model, um, using distance to the boundary as sort of the forcing variable. But then also, because that may not completely make you think that I've found exactly the women who would have opted into the program if they had had access to it, I went back to 40% of the villages and I did a completely random sample in both treated and controlled. And I'm going to compare the random sample of women in treated villages with a random sample of women in controlled villages. But what that means is I have beneficiaries and non-beneficiaries in treated villages. Is there also still some bias inherent in that though that by selecting the people who would most likely opt in, you're matching those, but you're also taking a subset that are more self-motivated or perhaps aspirational mindsets to begin with? In, in this first approach with those who selected into the group? Yeah. So there is, there is still that concern that the people who I can only match on these sort of observable characteristics and likely um, I'm not identifying exactly those who would have opted in because of things like aspirations. So here what I do instead is I just randomly sample. And so what it means is about only 40% of the women I look at opted in. And so ideally you should have the same distribution of aspirations there. Right. And so what I'll show you is that you see similar effects, although they're attenuated because you now have people who didn't opt in. And the effects of self-help groups only seem to be contained for those who actually participate in them. Okay, so here is kind of the big takeaway table. So what I have here are all of the outcome variables here. So an index of all forms of political participation that don't include voting, whether you voted in the last election, uh, whether you attended the Gram Sapa or made a claim to your local leader, made a claim to your block leader. And so the first column here is that match sample of respondents. So you may have these concerns uh, about selection. And then here I have the sample of respondents that were randomly selected from the subsample group. And so the treatment effect is what's recorded in each cell. And so what we see is that uh, political participation increases significantly when we think about attending a village assembly meeting. Again, we see significant effects. And I want to make the point that these are actually quite large effects. So this is the percentage of women in control villages that would have attended a meeting, so 21 percent. Uh, 16 percentage point more women are likely to attend the meeting in, uh, in areas or for women who are a part of a self-help group. So it's almost a doubling of the likelihood to participate in politics. So why do these groups matter? Yes. So on average, it's 40%. It varies substantially based on how many years the NGO has been operating in that area. So there is um, substantial variation. It's not something um, I haven't account like haven't looked at heterogeneity based on that, but that's something that I could do. Um, what I have done is look at only areas where take up was more than 60% versus areas where it wasn't, and you see that the effects go up the higher take up is. Um, related issue, I've done some work on same groups, which is 
So, and maybe this ties into this earlier point, so I should think about how to tease this out. But women in these groups ha uh, report substantially larger social networks, um, which is not that surprising if you think of this group as part of your social network, but also are significantly more likely to say that they discuss politics within their social network and with their friends, um, as well as have more sort of mobility within a village. But then also looking at, now this is not a causal identification, purely descriptively, thinking about within those people who are self-help group members, which are the ones who are most likely to be participating in politics? It seems to be the people who sort of discuss village issues in the SHG, so the groups that actually end up becoming political groups, um, and also those who sort of meet outside of the SHG for political reasons, but not for social reasons. Um, as well as we see some of the expected things like more educated and employed women are more likely to participate. Could, could you go back one slide? Mm -hmm. It looked like you've got a stronger effect for discuss <coughs> politics with friends when you do the random sampling. Is that? Do you think that's a spillover effect, or what no? Do you think that so is? I, I should have said this is the random sample, work, but where I'm instrumenting for participation. So it's this is looking at the effect for those who ended up participating. Oh, oh, that's it why is, it's stronger. Yeah. Okay. There is, in the paper, I have the just like pure random sample, and it's smaller. Yeah. I actually think this effect is not significant because there are no, the, there are no spillovers, actually. Okay. okay. Yeah. When we can think about bargaining power, so looking at a bunch of different things that might be happening at an individual level, it does seem that women report having more decision-making power in the household as a result of participating in these groups. But violence doesn't change much, although this could be sort of a mixed effect of uh, backlash as well as reporting differences. Um, household consumption behavior doesn't go up, and if anything, they may go down. Assets don't change, um, as well as reported sort of bias by husbands doesn't change at all. So gender attitudes don't seem to be changing as a result amongst men. Um, women also seem to have more information. Yes. of these comparison cases that feel similar. I think a question that I often get is, this is a context of very low social ties for women. So how much is this an argument about when women are super constrained to the household? And so this is very India-specific. Um, you know, I haven't, I don't have the data or the argument, but um, something I'm looking into is, I think that these kinds of um, sort of conditions and coordination behavior operate in contexts where there are much more social ties and it's more about who you talk with about politics and 
the degree to which you're, co you're collectively likely to act. I, mean, I think we can look at the US for, as an example, where despite the fact that there are very clear cases when women should coordinate their behavior and want to sort of act in the same way, gender still isn't a mobilizing political identity. Um, and, and I think some of that may be rooted in similar types of characteristics, even when you have greater social ties amongst women. So these, do, these groups do seem to be increasing women's political information, both subjectively in terms of reporting over do you know how to actually make a claim, um, or do you know whether or not women can be local leaders, but also on objective information. So when asked what's the number of days you're allowed to work under a local job fair program, women in these groups were more likely to give correct answers. And then last, um, I looked at the role of participating in these groups on things like confidence. Um, seeing these groups as sort of non-government uh, institutions to foster uh, sort of skills and your, your confidence to actually then go and engage in political institutions. And I did, um, what I haven't talked a lot about is I've done a lot of qualitative interviews and this confidence effect really came up in these interviews. Women, sort of the first thing they say when you ask what changed in your life as a result of joining is they'll say I'm now more confident and I'm willing to talk to people. And so we see some of that manifesting in the data that women both are, report greater confidence, but also a greater likelihood of actually speaking up, even if, if they were to go to these public meetings. So what does all of this, this mean? I think that, as we've already started to discuss, this has massive implications for our understanding of political behavior, particularly gendered political behavior, and thinking about how and when it is that gender becomes a mobilizing identity. Um, as well as trying to understand some of the mechanisms underlying the effects of social capital and political participation, thinking about how who you associate with matters uh, for your political behavior and which groups uh, you associate with. I also think we know that when women enter politics, policies change. We know that in India, we know that in the US, we know that in, in Europe. Um, and so this has massive implications for the distribution of goods and services. Uh, particularly in contexts where women are outsiders. We know that outsiders tend to mobilize around public goods and programmatic services. Um, and last, I think, sort of a, a hidden implication of this is something in the way that we think about economic development. So these programs were welfare programs aimed at increasing incomes and, and economic resources. Um, but what I see is that there's no large direct effect of these programs on women's economic well-being. If we were to stop here, we may think that we should scrap something like this in favor of something that has sort of larger income gains. But actually what this shows is that these economic programs can have very large indirect consequences on political behavior that may in turn, via some of these other channels, shape uh, development and the distribution of services. And so shouldn't necessarily be um, just evaluated based on that alone. Uh, and so that's uh, what I have for today. I'm already very appreciative of the comments I received, but look forward to any other questions and comments that you may have. for a second and think about the region that where you started South Asia with really bad uh, economic and political disparities in women's participation. All four big countries I can think of, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, have had women leaders, famously yeah. um, Bhutto and um, you know, Khalid Zia and Indira Gandhi and so on. So I wonder to what extent has that had any effect, if at all, 
on um, on women's political participation. I know they mostly come from dynasties because their fathers or husbands were in politics. Given that, but still, I mean, Benazir, for example, introduced massive uh, you know programs at the local level where uh, these women health workers would go and try to you know educate women on uh, sexual reproduction, reproductive health, and so on. So, do you see any evidence in India, for example, of that happening? Does it does it really matter? This is a really interesting question. Um, so there is a bunch of work, uh, not necessarily at the high levels of office, but through these reservations, on what are the consequences of having female representatives on uh, women's political participation and demands. And we do see effects of that on increasing women's engagement in institutions. Uh, there's a paper that shows that women are more likely to claim services when they're interacting with a female leader as opposed to a male leader in India. Um, so I don't want this to say that, that things like reservations and female representation doesn't matter, because we do have a lot of evidence that it does. I think what, what the findings from this show is that it's a nuanced answer to that. One is that reservations have been in place for decades now, and yet we continue to see this gender gap in political participation. And so even though we have parity in terms of representation, we don't have parity in terms of citizens actually engaging in these institutions. And so we may need to think beyond just the formal institution to how that formal institution can be linked to other programs to bring women as citizens into spaces. Um, and so I think that's kind of, and, and then I think the other thing to say is that I have another very early stage project thinking about this, but is the implications of uh, female representation when they emerge from sort of traditional male-based political networks as opposed to sort of gender-based political networks and whose interests they represent. And I think there's likely going to be different consequences for policy outcomes if women are sort of supported by a mobilized citizenry of other women or if they're emerging either through dynasties or other, uh, other ways from sort of traditional political networks. Yes. So you mentioned almost in Sometimes the husbands of these women actually, you know, get the real political power. Yeah. And I wanted to hear a little more about it because we did this research in Pakistan. The women counselors at the local government level uh, had such severe mobility constraints that some of them, um, you know, said, well, our husbands attend the meetings and they take the decisions, even though they're really not office holders. So yeah. could you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, um, so that's... Um, Something that in this book I'm not exploring, but have started to get some data on. So I have a little bit to say, although I'll sort of couch that in uh, preliminary sort of findings. So in in these areas, there's a term for this. It's called pati sarpanch, so husband mayor. So where you could go into a village and ask, like, is there a pati sarpanch? And they would say yes, which means. Um, so as an example of this, I went. I was doing interviews. I wanted to interview the sarpanch in this village that was reserved for a woman. So I go and I'm asking for the sarpanch and they take me to this house and, and I'm sitting there and they're like, the sarpanch is out for meetings, they're out for meetings and I'm sitting there and an hour goes by and I'm like, I've seen this woman walk by many times. What are you talking about? And like, well, that's not the sarpanch, her husband is coming. Um, and so I think it's definitely something that happens where even though formally women are listed as leaders, they're actually proxies for other people. I think this happens even outside of gender for sort of caste-based reservations. That said, I don't know that we have great data right now to know how pervasive that is. We do have studies that show that these reservations have implications for policy. So it's definitely not the case that these are an entirely co-opted institution. Um, 
what I can say on that is I did this survey of leaders at the same time as this, and when you ask female leaders versus male leaders um, whether or not they're likely to ask the someone like a male someone else in their household for help, 92% of women say that they get support from the household as compared to only about 30% of men. So there is definitely some non-trivial uh, proportion of this happening. Support in their formal role. In their support. formal role. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I'm, you know, I'm thinking of this in the context of what's happened here, mm -hmm. and, and the issues around violence, right? So, you know, so the Me Too movement, yeah. right, which was really about men's behavior, right? Yeah. So, you know, I think that the, um, while this is effective, I also think that there's, you know, this issue of, of violence, domestic mm -hmm. violence, is an international, it's a global issue and so you know the concept that somehow um, you know women around the world should be forming these kind of networks to to um, you know to deal with what and what I don't understand is how this gets perpetuated in men's societies so readily how it is that men so many men think that this is the way you behave this is okay and so, you know, it clearly comes out in this and what the impact of this is, um, you know, on political participation, you know, women's, just on everything. Yeah, I, um, I wish I knew and, could, and understood the origination of these norms, um, and I won't even attempt to, to speculate on that. What I can say is I agree. I think that these, these kinds of issues are pervasive. They're not specific to India. Um, they're the kinds of things that are likely to create shared interests amongst women. Um, and that said, I think the challenge is why, even in the context of the Me Too movement, we don't necessarily see you know, collective action. We do see there has been a growing collective action amongst women, and we've seen that in women's marches and things that have been happening. Um, but at the same point in time, we see in a lot of elections that there are still like vast differences um, across race in terms of the way that women vote, and there are lots of women who are voting against some of their interests and continue to be struck by the Alabama special election um, as a key example of that. And I haven't explored this, but I think that some of it lies in the same dynamics. When you come home to someone who actively has a different interest than you and can impose some form of control, even if you're conscious of the fact that you would want to behave differently, um, or if you're not conscious of that, that may constrain the support that you give to these gender-based causes. That said, I think that, for example, the Me Too movement is indicative of the fact that while women have a lot of shared interests, violence is something that really unites us in a very clear way and has the power, as it does here, to actually mobilize women together more than maybe other issues would. Actually, working off of this question, um, Norris and Crook um, published in Non-Quota Strategies that the passage of um, laws against the violence of women for people who are, for women who are running is crucial to um, having more representation and so I was wondering in India like what the status of those laws are if they exist or not. Laws against the, uh, the violence violence against female represent, representatives that run. So I don't I don't know about the laws against um, female representatives. I know that there are you know as everywhere lots of laws against violence against women. Um, at the very sort of local level, though, um, 
what's interesting, and this is now anecdotal, I'm stepping into speculative territory, um, but from some of the interviews that I've done, it seems that, so reporting of these, uh, of incidences of violence are, the likelihood that you get a response depends on your interactions with local police forces, um, often many of whom, and I've talked to so many women who've said, they just said, go back and sort this out, like this is, you know, we're not gonna, we'd like you to, to resolve this first. And so having, this is one way to get back to an earlier question, that having sort of an actual female representative can have implications, because often they'll take the Sarpanjara punch with them to go and negotiate these, uh, these spaces. So, I mean, all of that is like not a very clear answer to what, uh, to what you're asking, but I think that both the, the legal environment is super important and I believe would have substantial effects, but I think that the customary environment is still um, operates outside of that legal environment at times. Oh, I'm sorry we have to stop here. It's such a great conversation. <laughs>